Uh, give me an idea, brother. What time do we need to be? Take an hour if you want to. Yeah. Oh, I want two or three hours, but I, <laughs> no, I know that you folks cannot endure all of that. So we'll try to uh, try to be brief, as brief as I can be, on this wonderful passage. Second Peter, turn there if you would. Second Peter, chapter one, and let's take our text out of the first eleven verses there. Second Peter, chapter one. 1 through 11. I'm going to be reading out of the King James. That's sort of my go-to version, what I grew up with. And uh, What is your preferred version? What do you all use most of the time here? I use NASB there. People have different... The assortment, okay. Yeah. Well, good. I constantly refer to other versions all the time and will be doing that this morning. Uh, your version is maybe a little easier to read than mine, but... Uh, Trust me, for most people, when they read through, especially the first verses of this chapter, they sort of read it, they understand the words, and yet uh, the, the sense of what's being said tends to escape no matter what version you're reading. And so I hope we can make things a little plainer this morning. Okay, follow as I read. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue by which are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, uh, mine says temperance, self-control is what it means, to self-control patience or perseverance, to patience, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity or love. Now if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged with his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter here is addressing what we would call how to live the Christian life. And honestly, that is a question that perplexes many. Um, I grew up in a very conservative religious community, a rural farming area of northeast Texas. And um, the basic idea that I was reared with is that when you become a Christian, okay, here's the rules over here. You know, you don't smoke, cuss, drink, or chew, don't go with the girls that do, that, that kind of stuff. <laughs> And you just do it. It's all up to you. There's the rules. Now keep the rules. Uh, later on in my college years, uh, and so notice that that is sort of one extreme. It's all you. Okay. 
In my college years, I was introduced with what we call today the deeper life movement. Some of you may have had some exposure to that, but it's the very opposite thing. It's saying doing, you trying to do the Christian life is your problem. It's not the answer, it's the problem. What you need to do is let go and let God. In other words, don't get in the way, you just become passive and let God do what needs to be done. Notice the extreme here. This one said it's all up to you. This one says it's all up to God. So you just sit and you don't have any motivations to do anything because that's the flesh you see getting in the way of what God is doing. So you've got to wait for the Spirit to move you. Unfortunately, I found that very paralyzing. I sit in my easy chair waiting on the Spirit to move me and I get sleepy. <laughs> you know, I, all of a sudden you can't really take any initiative, you see, because how do you know if that's you or if this is the Spirit doing it? So here's the, sort of the two extremes that I've been through. What we're going to see today is Peter lays out clearly the biblical way of thinking of the Christian life and how to live it. There's an old Scottish preacher named John Brown lived about 1800 and reading his sermon on this passage is very helpful because he said you need to approach this passage asking four questions number one who is Peter writing to who is he addressing number two what is he telling them to do number three how are they supposed to do it and number four what are the benefits from doing it Okay, and, and I'm going to sort of take that as my outline this morning. So let's start with that first question. Who is Peter writing to? Uh, it's interesting that in 2 Peter 3 verse 1, he mentions I'm writing this second epistle to you. So he's writing to the very same group of people he wrote the first epistle to. And when you look back at it, the first verses there tell us that these are Christians that are scattered through um, what it would be modern day Turkey. Uh, different locations in Turkey. And some have questioned, well, is the, are these Jewish believers? After all, Peter was particularly uh, the apostle to the Jews, as Paul was to the Gentiles. Um, but when you look at the internal evidence, it seems that there's probably some Jewish believers in the mix, but he mentions the fact that you've lived long enough like a Gentile, now live this way. And so it would appear that his audience is basically converts from the Gentile world. They're clearly Christians. Notice that in our first verse here that he mentions that these have obtained what he calls a like precious faith with us. The same kind of faith that I have, you've received. And this is an interesting observation from the very beginning that faith was not something already inherently in them. I grew up in a tradition that basically we've all got faith. You just need to turn it on. You just need to exercise it. But here we learn that faith is something extrinsic to our condition. We, it's out there. We need to obtain this faith. And then the question is, okay, how did they obtain it? 
I mean, there's various ways of obtaining something. You can obtain a degree by going to college and working. Uh, you can obtain a new car by going to your job, earning enough money. You can go out at night with a little five-finger discount and obtain stuff, uh, steal it. There's various ways of obtaining something. The Greek word here, and I'm not an expert in Greek, but I know some who are, and uh, they tell me that this is a very interesting word. It means to obtain, literally, to obtain by lot. You remember how the lot would fall on this person or that person? And from the human side of things, it's just mere chance, right? Well, there's no rhyme or reason why the lot fell this way. I, I mentioned my experience growing up with Tex Watson, the Manson killer, you know, the murderer. And I, I, that's the perplexing thing to me. Uh, our lives were so similar, came from the same environment. Why him? Uh, why didn't I wind up the murderer? Why didn't he wind up the minister? Uh, there's no rhyme or reason to it from the human side. But of course from the divine side there's a reason. It is God's sovereign grace. But notice that this is to obtain something not by our effort, not by our works. It is something graciously given to us. In fact, some of your translations may you ha you have received. You've received it. It's extrinsic to you. It has come to you. So these are believers. And in verse 2, we sort of see the theme here. And I think the King James gets this very well. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Uh, you've not only just received grace and peace, but the idea here is a multiplication of those to abound in these graces and what follows is the way that's going to work. So that's that first question, who is he writing to, okay? Believers, they've obtained faith, same kind of faith Peter's got. That's interesting, he's an apostle, he walked with Jesus, but at the end of the day the faith that we have as Christians is exactly the same quality as the faith he had. We're trusting in Christ, okay? So the second question is, what, what does he tell them to do? And third one, how does he tell them to do it? And Peter sort of reverses those two things. It's not real clear. And this is, these, uh, verse 3 and 4 are the real difficult passages for us to follow. This reads almost like legalese, you know, the fine print at the bottom of a contract. It's just a run-on sentence. And I want you to notice, uh, well, it's according to his divine power, that's given to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through, and this is the second time he used the word through, he used it in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God, okay, now we have it again, through the knowledge of him that called you to grace and glory, by which, or through which, there's a third time, we are given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that by these, through these, you see the connection just runs on and on through this, through this, through this, and this. Through this, he's given to you these great and precious promises that you might obtain, be partakers of this divine nature. And uh, can I boil it down to just good old Mississippi redneck uh, <laughs> translation? Basically, what this is saying is God has put the whole enchilada in his son. Everything you and I need has been deposited in his son. 
He doesn't say it quite as succinctly or perhaps clearly to our ear as Paul will do in other places, but it's the same idea we see in Colossians, that in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. You have everything. You've been joined to Christ. That's the important part of this thing of faith. It joins us. It unites us to Christ. And being united to Christ, we've been united to the person in whom God has deposited everything we need. And notice here, not he's everything we need in verse 3 that pertains to life and godliness. It's all in him. He's given us then these promises by which we may appropriate it in verse 4 so that we can be partakers of the divine nature. Now that's a, a little bit of a confusing statement because some of the cults have taken that phrase and said, well see, we actually have the potential to become divinity. Well, that's clearly not what Peter is saying. Many passages of Scripture makes it clear that we never become divinity. There's a great gulf between us and God. When we talk about the attributes of God, sometimes we talk about the communicable attributes and the incommunicable. Incommunicable means there's no way you can be like God in that way. Uh, his omnipotence. His omnipresence. Can you be everywhere at the same time? Not me. Knowing all things. You know, knowing all, having all power, those are things that pertain only to the infinite being we call God. But there are communicable attributes in which in those things we're sort of like God. Knowledge. He's got all knowledge. We have some knowledge. We have some power. We just don't have all power. Righteousness. Um, go down the line. He's holy. We're called to be holy. And notice in those areas, those attributes, we have a similarity to God. And that's clearly what Peter is referring to here that you can become more godly in your life. What you need for that process is has been put in Christ. He's given you promises to draw it out and to apply it to your life so that you can be conformed or transformed from the life you used to live to this new life, a life of godliness and righteousness. So that's sort of, here's, here's how this is supposed to work. Okay, is that, that clear? You got, you got the picture? And then in verse 4, he tells us what we're to do. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I missed a verse. Verse 5. And it seems so innocuous. Verse 5. Besides this, give all diligence, add to your faith virtue, virtue knowledge, and, and so forth. It, that doesn't sound very powerful. In Greek it is. It is a command. It is not just, oh, by the way. It's sort of like you buy a new car. You have these options you can add. You might want today. You want a steering wheel. You want a power steering. You want... Windshield wipers, you know, I'm thinking of all that used to. We had to pay for all that stuff, and today I guess you do too. But, but you notice that these are just options. Uh, that's not what Peter is saying. When he says give all diligence, he's saying again, as we would say in the South, get her done. This is job one. This is your number one responsibility as a Christian. To add these things 
things to your faith. Notice you've got faith. How did you get it? You obtained it. By lot. Not by merit. Not by fact you're smarter than everybody else and you figured it all out. No. Purely by grace you have obtained faith. But now add to your faith and he's going to list seven things that follow. We'll talk about those in just a minute. But when I say add to your faith, again, that sounds like an optional thing, like power windows instead of manual windows on a car. And that is not the sense of the word at all. I have a dear friend who is a pastor in Athens, Greece. And he's, of course, a Greek native, knows Greek backwards and forwards. Uh, Kone Greek, biblical Greek, a little different, sort of like us reading Shakespeare. But let's put it this way, he has a much better handle on the language than any of us will ever have, because it's his native tongue. And I was visiting him over in Athens a few years ago, and he was pointing out that this verb translated add to, or what do you have, supplement in many of your versions, is an interesting word. It's korageo in Greek, and uh, a fascinating, fascinating word. You're all aware, I assume, that the Greeks just love their Greek tragedies. You know, these plays, uh, there in Athens, they would be performing these various works. And they, everybody wanted to go have a good cry uh, because they had the idea that crying cleanses the soul. So they had these tragedies where you have this fellow that everybody likes and all these bad things happen to him. And pulls it, jerk, it's a tearjerker, okay? So, and what, I had never even thought about it. Who paid for this stuff? I just assumed the city or the state, you know, tax money supported. He said, oh no, you had a rich patron of the arts who would sponsor these plays. He's a guy with deep pockets. And he's going to hire the actors, sometimes even the fellow to write the play. He's going to rent the, the place where the play is going to be put on. In other words, he would be like in movie talk today, he's going to be the producer. He's not going to be in the play. He's not an actor. He's not going to write the play. He's the guy that bankrolls the production. He's got the deep pockets to pay for the production to go on. They called him a Koragos. A Koragos. Uh, by the way, perhaps your ear picks up something here. Our word choreography, which comes from this very word. And the Greek word here, add to, is a Greek verb, choreago. What Peter is commanding us is to choreago to our faith these seven things. You say, well, what do you mean by that? To choreago is to act as a choragos. It is to reach into the depository and supply whatever's necessary, just like the choragos did for the plays they're going to put on in Greece. Supply this to your faith. Now, you might be saying like me, but wait, wait a minute here. Uh, I'm not uh, a rich patron of the arts. I, I don't have the deep pockets. But that's his point. Oh, yes, you do. That's what the first, the, uh, verse 3 and 4 has been telling us. 
you have now, through faith, been joined to the one in whom has been deposited every single thing you need to live the Christian life. It's in him, and you're connected to him, and you've been given these great promises to let you appropriate that which is in him. And this is a fascinating idea. I said these models of the Christian life, extremes, that what Peter is telling us is that God, let me use a military term here, God has made you the quartermaster of your soul, the steward of your soul. Now the quartermaster in military terms, it used to be anyway, uh, he's the guy that makes sure all the soldiers have boots to wear, have a uniform, have a place to sleep, have food to put in their bellies. He's the guy that took care of everything the troops are going to need. A steward, in its original sense, is somebody who acts on behalf of someone else. And what I'm saying is that Peter is telling us that you, uh, whose monkey does spiritual life, spiritual growth, whose monkey, uh, what shoulder is that monkey on? Is it all on you? Is it all on God? You back to those models and what Peter is presenting to us here that you have been given the responsibility to appropriate it but the supply is in Christ. You are to draw out of him everything you need for living the Christian life. It's just a mind-blowing, freeing thing. Now I know what I'm supposed to do. You say, I don't have deep pockets. He does. <laughs> And you've been permission, you've been given permission to draw out of the vast supply that is in Christ what you need for your daily life, for your daily walk. It's like if I'm starving to death and the pantry is full of food, whose fault is it that I'm hungry? <laughs> you know, <laughs> the provision is there, but I'm too lazy to get up off the couch and go get it. And that's the problem. And let me put it a little more fashionable way. Alexander McLaren was an old Scottish preacher. And let me quote him here. Listen to this. We may have as much of God as we will. Think about that. You can have as much of God as you want. Christ puts the key of the treasure chamber into our hand. That's those great and precious promises. And bids us take all that we want. If a man is admitted into the bullion vault of a bank and told to help himself and comes out with one cent, whose fault is it that he's poor? <laughs> you see what he's saying? You can have as much of him as you want. How much do you really want though? That's the limiting factor here. And we say, well, I would be this or I would be that if, if I had more of this or more of supply, more, more grace. Use a generic term here. If I had more grace, I could be more of this. And what Peter is saying is, no, the only thing throttling your productivity is you. It's not from a lack of resources. The resources are there in Christ Jesus. And so you say, okay, what do I need then to appropriate out of this storehouse whose name is Jesus Christ, this warehouse, 
What do I need to appropriate? And that's what now follows. You've got faith. Now add to that faith, Geo, to your faith, these seven things. Now we could spend the rest of the week here talking about these seven things. I got time. I don't know if y'all do, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> but just, let's just take a, a quick look at the seven things he wants, says to add to your faith. Uh, you add to your faith virtue. That's excellence. Uh, and I think in the context, moral excellence. You add to your virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, temperance, that's self-control. Control, you know, you don't lose your temper. You don't fly off the handle in control of yourself. Uh, to your self-control, you are to add patience, that's perseverance, keep going. You don't quit when things get hard. Godliness follows, it's piety, uh, it's your religious life. Uh, your devotional life, your reading the scriptures, your prayer life, you add that. Uh, then to your godliness, you add brotherly kindness. That's the love that we sense right here this morning with each other, that we love these of like our brothers and sisters. And then finally, charity or agape, love. The love of God that uh, if there is a difference, sometimes it seems brotherly love and agape are used sort of interchangeably, but if there, uh, clearly here he means something different by that last term. And I would just say this is the love that we have experienced from God. It's not that, in, in the case of brotherly love, we love each other because we have a common bond. Uh, you know, there's, we're family. Uh, but this is the love that goes out beyond that. Uh, that we love uh, mercy, we love those who are in sin even though we don't love their sin, but we, there is a love, the love of God that extends itself to us. Well, okay, we could spend all day uh, talking just about that. Just notice a few things about this list of seven things. Did you notice that, well, there's a variety here. The, some of it has to do with us, our inner life, our piety, our self-control. Uh, some of it has to do with others. Uh, brotherly kindness, your love to each other. Some of it has to do with God, our love of God, the piety that he mentions here. Uh, notice there's a variety there. Also notice that these seven things Paul, uh, Peter lists are very similar uh, to the nine things Paul lists over in Galatians 5 where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, I think we'll see even closer, tighter connection there, but there is about four of these things in Peter's list are going to be found in Paul's list over in Galatians 5. So in other words, this is sort of in Peter's words, the same thing that Paul is telling us over there. This is the fruit of the Spirit being produced. That's what we're drawing out. And, and notice that these things are not things you do. They're more qualities of your character. Uh, uh, Brother Brian, let's go out tonight. Go out on the town and commit temperance. <laughs> let's go commit self-control. You know, you know, it doesn't make any sense. These things are not so much things you do. They're things you are. Right? This is, this, and, and I want to be very careful here. These are not the fruit of the Spirit, your fruit. They're the fruit of the Spirit, but they're not your fruit. And I'm going to make a distinction here, because I think we get this mixed up. 
we think the end result is for me to have love, peace, joy, temperance, all these things. No, that's the prerequisite for the good works that are to flow out of your life. That's the fruit. That's your fruit. This is the fruit of the Spirit, not your fruit. It's the Spirit's fruit. It's the prerequisite. You know what a prerequisite is? Go to college, you want to take a course, oh, you've got to have this one first. This is a prerequisite for that, because if you don't understand this, you're not ever going to do that. These are the prerequisites for living the Christian life. This sets the soil out of which the fruit can now spring. Is that clear? I, th I think it's easy for us to confuse that. In other words, this is the necessary ingredients for us to live a fruitful, productive Christian life towards others, ministering. I mean, what we I call them the big S's, three S's. To serve, to suffer, and to sacrifice in the cause of Christ. That's what we're called to do. These are the things you're going to have to have within if you're ever going to do those things. Okay. What, another question is, are these things building one on the other? Is there a connection? Is this like a chain? I, I Honestly, I've struggled with that question. Uh, perhaps there is a little bit of a connection. For instance, uh, add to your faith virtue, moral excellence. That's just living law-abiding Christians, okay, moral. Uh, then to add to virtue knowledge, you clearly got to know the will of God before you can live an excellent moral life in parallel to that. So there may be some connection. So uh, what's clear is that by comparing this list with Paul's list, it's not intended to be an all-encompassing. Remember, seven is a symbolic number to the Jews. It's the total thing. In other words, there's a reason. These, this represents the whole total of what is necessary in our heart for a productive life. Now that leads us to that last question. Who did he write to? What did he tell them to do? How are they supposed to do it? I hope by now those answers are clear. Fourthly, what are the benefits from doing it? And here's where the idea of fruitfulness comes. Notice in verse 8. For if, you, if these things be in you, these things we just talked about, and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice these are not the fruit. These are the things that will make you not be barren or unfruitful if these things are in you. These are the things from which the fruit shall spring. In other words, let me give you an illustration. These are the fertilizer. It's the fertilizer for Christian fruit bearing. Just like you put fertilizer out there in your garden, put these growth things out there to uh, get it to grow and put out the fruit. This is like fertilizer for the soul, for the Christian. These are the ingredients necessary to produce that fruit. Notice verse 9, not only is it fertilizer, it's medicine. These things are medicine, first of all, for your eyes. And notice, to, I need to remind you here that faith so often in Scripture is connected to seeing. 
the seeing of faith. They, we walk by faith, not by sight. Notice it's a just uh, f- walking by faith is a different kind of seeing, you see. Uh, Moses endured as he saw him who was invisible, speaking of God. Faith is, is sort of a seeing of the inner soul. That we see things that are they're, they're there, but they're not there. They're not tangible. Uh, we can't put our hands on them. Uh, I thought, man, what an easy thing it would be if our treasures are laid up in heaven, if we could just see the bank account up there. See the bank and see how much we got, you know. But no, uh, we've just got to take God's word for it, right? We have no evidence that we can set before somebody that there's a treasure waiting on us in glory. Uh, that's what it means to walk by faith and to see afar off. Notice he's saying what you want to watch out, that you don't become nearsighted. That you only see the here. I was taking my grandkids down to the Gulf and we were crossing the bridge there at Mobile Bay and they have the USS Alabama sitting out there and I was telling them all about it before we got there. And you can look out to your right and you'll see the USS Alabama moored out here and we get up there and there's a fog bank over the whole bay and you can't hardly see the guardrail, let alone the, the big <laughs> ship out there. Well, that's what we mean by being nearsighted and you can't see afar off. You're, you're no longer able to get the big picture anymore. You're living for the here and now. Only those things that you can see right around you. And you, I trust you know what that's like. How often we fall into that trap. That what's happening to me right now in my little world right here, that's the only thing that matters in the universe. And we get distracted from the big picture. But not only is it medicine for your eyes, it's medicine for your mind. The older I get, the more important that is, the medicine for your mind. I forget why I've got these things tied on. Guess why? Because if I don't have them tied on, I can't possibly keep up with them. You're, if you're, you hadn't got there yet, your day's coming if you live long enough. Trust me, okay? The old saying, you walk into a room, forget what you came in there for. Oh my, that's, that's my experience these days. Well, notice that what he's saying is for the believer to add these things is an antidote to spiritual dementia. Forgetfulness. You, you say, well, forget what? Notice he says that you've forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. What? Uh, I remember a story about a woman walked in, found her husband with another woman, and she said, but honey, we're married. And he said, I forgot. (laughs) Well, folks, there's just certain things you better not forget. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I don't think that's going to work, that excuse. I forgot. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. Neither is it an excusable excuse for a Christian to forget that he was purged from his old sins. Forget what Christ did for him at the cross. But we live like it sometimes. I mean, factually, we may know it, but do we actually live like we've forgotten? And by the way, that's one of the reasons we observe the Lord's table, is it? Do this in what? Remembrance. I want you to remember the shed blood. I want you to remember the broken body. Why? Why do we need that? Why not just one and done? 
No, you need it constantly being brought to your mind. This is the heart and soul of the gospel, what Christ did for us on the cross. It's the heart and soul of everything that's going to flow out of your life. And so notice it's medicine, not only fertilizer, but it's medicine for your eyes, for your mind. And then finally, the last benefit here is it'll help make your calling and election sure. Now that's a puzzling verse. Give diligence, do these things to make your calling and election sure. Now, last time I checked, if we're talking about God's choice in election, it either is or it isn't, right? It's binary. It's either on or it's off. Same thing with his effectual call. He either called you or he didn't. There's sort of not, well, I was sort of, sort of called. I was sort of chosen. no. It either is or it isn't. So what, how can you then make a certain choice more sure? Well, clearly Peter here is not talking objectively from the standpoint of God. He's talking subjectively from our standpoint. There are certainly certain times in my life that I'm absolutely overwhelmed with assurance of salvation and my next breath, man, I'm going to be there in glory. And then there's those other times when I struggle. How could I be a Christian and say what I just said or do what I just did? I think we have a binary idea of how salvation ought to work or assurance. It's either on or off. You either got it all or you got it not. In fact, I grew up in a tradition where you walk an aisle, you say the sinner's prayer, and the preacher pats you on the back. Now you're saved. Don't ever doubt it. Don't ever question it. You're in. No matter how you live from this point on, uh, go out and murder a few people. Doesn't matter. You're, you're, you're saved and saved. Once saved, always saved. Now, I believe that to a point. But, but that doesn't mean that your life has no connection. I, I see assurance of salvation more of an analog thing. That there's times it's way up here. And there's times it's way down here. And times it's almost gone. And that's why we need encouragement from the brothers. Why need, we need the gospel preached to us over and over. Jerry Bridges, my dear friend that passed away a few years ago, said you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Yeah. <laughs> I'm there. That's what I need. And so I think that's what Peter is talking about here. That these are the, these are the evidences of real, genuine Christianity. And it's sort of like the vital signs of life. You say, I've got life. I'm alive to God. I believed on Jesus. I've got everlasting life. Well, guess what, folks? Life has signs. We call them vital signs. You, you have respiration. You have a heartbeat. Right? And if you come up and no respiration, no heartbeat, you say, that thing's dead, right? Dead. So it is in the Christian life. If there are not these signs, these things are not the giving of life. They're not how you get life. They're the evidence of life. And so by adding these things in abundance to your life, what's happening is you're giving yourself more and more reasons, good reasons, to believe that, yeah, I'm actually alive to God. And, and I'm not trying to be boastful or self-righteous in saying this, but each of us needs to take a good long look inside. And if our life is absolutely devoid of these things, 
We have no love for the brethren. We have no life of devotion to God. We have no desire to know His will. If those things are completely absent, might be a good time to take stock of where exactly are we? Are we truly alive to God? Now that's not to say, and you realize that Peter is giving you and I a lifelong project here. You say, I just don't have anything to do as a believer. Oh yes you do. This is a pretty big task right here. Here's your job. We clearly, at each stage of our life, whether we're a young believer, a babe in Christ, or the oldest mature believer here, these words are still addressed to us. Add to your faith these things. More and more of these qualities. Spurgeon once put it like this, this last verse where he talks about a big entrance being ministered to you into the everlasting kingdom of Christ. Isn't that a strange verse? Verse 11. You add these things to your life. If they abound in you, and you make in your calling election sure, and you you will get, be given a big entrance into Christ's kingdom. Spurgeon illustrated that. He said in his day, or prior days, in the days of the Puritans, they would have refugees coming, Christians fleeing Europe, uh, persecution there. And he said some of them came on, over on ocean liners, and some of them came across the English Channel fleeing to wreckage, a raft that had broken. In other words, some of them came over here and looked like drowned rats. The others came over in comfort on the Queen Mary. Okay? And he used that to illustrate this whole I'll use perhaps one more illustration. I've been on an airplane, been on a jet to go somewhere. And uh, this young lady, I was telling all about this, she was absolutely petrified. She'd never been on an airplane to lie. And she was just absolutely certain that we were going to crash at any moment. And you have across the aisle, you have a businessman that flies almost every day. He's flown a thousand times higher in the air. She's sitting over there fidgeting. He's sitting over here sounding sweet. You know, about in the world. One of them has a whole bunch of faith. She has hardly any, okay? Which is more safe? Which one of them is the safer? Both the same. Both the same. Because their safety doesn't depend on how faith safe they feel. Their safety is in the integrity of the airplane and the skill of the captain, right? Yeah. It has nothing to do with them anymore. And so it is with us. When you're in... Christ, it's like you've gotten on you've gotten on board this airliner. And you may think you're about to slam into the mountain. But the real matter is it's all in his hands and you're trusting him. And if that, once you get in Christ, it really has nothing to do with you anymore. But which one of those two people has the better trip? That's what Peter is driving home here. That's good. And it also answers another question. How much faith then does it take to save the soul? Just enough to get on the clock. That's it. Just enough to get on the clock.
Because yeah, from that point on, when you've got big faith or little faith, your destiny is Because your destination is fixed. It's wherever that plane is going, that's where you're going. And guess what? Your head is already resurrected, glorified, seated in glory at the right hand of God. Where the head goes, the body's coming. <laughs> so if you know not Christ, flee to death. Give it all up. And trust, enter in to this relationship, this union with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in whom are hidden all the treasures. Father, thank you for your word and for the comfort it brings us, the instruction it gives us. Father, we've got our marching orders here, and it's a tall task. It's one that we will be occupied with for the rest of our lives as believers. May we be diligent about it. May we be serious about it. May we not be content, Father. But may we, with, with the miserable uh, experience that we might have or the lack of, of fruitfulness in affecting the lives of those around us, may we strive for excellence. May we try to raise the bar. May we set good examples for those around about us. And Father, may we remember that at all times, we're to be looking back to our repository, the one in whom is hidden these treasures. If we want to know what we're to do, we look to Him. If we want to know how to do it, we look to Him. If we want to have the grace, we must go to Him. And that's why we pray, and that's why we pour out our hearts to Him, is that He might supply His grace to give us the ability to live the life we've been called to live. Help us in that endeavor. Bless these saints here. Thank you for their pastors and their families and the hospitality that's been shown to us. Bless them in the days ahead. We long to hear good things, good fruit being born by the believers in this place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.